This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 14th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Judging from his policy priorities thus far, President Biden badly misread the 2020 election results. According to Ramesh Panuru, the brand spanking new editor of National Review, the consequences in November this year will likely be significant. I believe we were promised a president at the end of 2020 who would be boring in a sense, that would restore a sense of normalcy. What what was your understanding of the, the promise of Joe Biden? I think that a lot of voters selected Biden on the ground that he wasn't Donald Trump and that he would be a more normal president uh, and that they wouldn't have to spend a whole lot of time thinking about him, uh, frankly. Um, but that is not the way that President Biden has tried to govern. Uh, he has instead interpreted his election as a mandate to achieve sweeping progressive change. And I think a lot of the story of his first year in office has been the collision of those ambitions with political reality. So I, I can understand if if I'm a person coming into the Biden administration and this is the first sort of taste of being close to the seat of power, that I'm going to do everything I can to push the things that I know once Americans get a taste of them, uh, the various policy reforms that I I know are the right thing to do, uh, that they're just going to love it and they're going to reward my party with uh, electoral success for a long time to come. That doesn't strike me as uh, too out of the ordinary for uh, a new administration. No, um, you know, the the thing is, this is the fifth presidency in a row that we have had where the president started out with unified control of Congress and started trying to put through his agenda. Now, the previous four presidents lost both chambers of Congress during their presidency. I think that should have been a warning sign to President Biden about how enthusiastic Americans actually are about any partisan agendas and the extent to which they are voting for candidates because of these agendas versus voting for these candidates because they fear the other side. So when you rattle off the list of policies that we've seen that are beyond the pale uh, with respect to what Joe Biden pledged to deliver, what stands out to you? So Biden ran on an extremely left-wing platform, and that is one reason why the Democrats are going down this path. Uh, They can honestly say that most of the people who voted for them are in favor of all of the things that they are trying to do. The problem is that wasn't the decisive margin that got him elected. The people who voted for him, who put him over the top, were essentially the kinds of people who voted for Mitt Romney back in 2012, but were not willing to go along with Trump, or certainly were not willing to go along with him by 2020. 
that's the frustration they're having, that they're finding that a lot of those voters are now defecting from them, as we saw in the Virginia gubernatorial election, when a lot of those voters ended up going for the Republican, Glenn Youngkin, and putting him over the top. What changes uh, because of the pandemic, because of uh, a, lo- a whole lot of local issues and state and local issues are going to be driving elections in, in 2022, at least that's my uh, sense of it. What do you think Democrats uh, in general are just not prepared for when it comes to the election that most likely the Democrats are, are going to lose both the House and the Senate? Um, what's going to be driving that, do you think? Well, I think part of it is simply a kind of um, pendulum swing, uh, a public reaction against unified government. We've now seen that happen again and again and again, um, where as almost as soon as um, the country gets a taste of unified democratic government or unified Republican government, uh, it tries to get rid of it. Um, and that's never lasted for longer than four years over the last um, 40, uh, 40 plus years that we've had um, this this kind of period where we don't have a natural majority party. Um, so that's the first thing. In fact, I guess you'd have to go back to 1968 and we haven't had a period longer than four years of unified government. And then, of course, there are the more specific issues. Um, people are not happy about this economy um, and they shouldn't be. Um, you know, you do see a lot of these um, a lot of the commentators saying, why are people unhappy about this economy? It's, it's such a great economy. And they they cite all these statistics. But the key thing is people do not like an economy when they are not seeing their own living standards improve. And that is the case right now, because any wage gains people are getting are being more than eaten up by inflation. So I, you know, the statistics could change between now and next November, but I suspect that, that is going to be one of the top issues in the election. And then, of course, there's just the question of what happens with COVID. Um, you know, it, it's possible to see that receding as an issue and with it, some of the issues that have gotten attached to it, like school closures. Um, but uh, but things would have to change pretty rapidly for there to be the kind of public happiness that might um, blunt what is otherwise likely to be a, a pretty large Republican wave here. Uh, Democrats were, as, as far as I know, historically, and, and Scott Lincecum, uh, my colleague here at the Cato Institute, can correct me, Democrats were never more uh, of one mind when it came to trade and immigration uh, than they were in 2020. And yet, uh, since Joe Biden has become president, very little has occurred on either of those two issues to uh, free up trade or increase the rad- increase from the radical reductions uh, in immigration that the Trump administration in, in put in place. Well, I think that those issues work differently politically um, be- because in the case of immigration, um, the president really would need some legislative buy-in and the legislative politics of immigration are as 
a number of presidents have now found pretty treacherous. Trade, in a way, is a more interesting story because a lot of what President Trump did on that, he did unilaterally. And those things could be undone by President Biden. As uh, as Scott has uh, pointed out, and as you note, um, there does seem to be more support among Democratic voters for open trade than there used to be. I think partly that's because of the changing class basis of the Democratic Party as more professionals move into the Democratic Party. Um, it's partly a reaction to President Trump's being so uh, identified with the cause of protectionism. And there's just sort of a, a reactive uh, move on the part of Democrats. Um, but Biden has hung back from really doing much to reverse Trump era policies, even though I think you can make a pretty strong case that those policies were not especially successful. And I think it really comes down to it being as simple as they just don't want to open themselves up to any line of attack that they are indifferent to working class interests. Um, they don't want Republicans to be able to campaign on that issue. And, oh, and then, of course, there are some of their most organized supporters in, in labor favor some of these tariffs as well. So there's an interest group politics to it as well. What else? What am I what am I leaving on the table here? You know, I think it's it's worth noting that the Democrats' control of Congress is exceptionally narrow, and what they are trying for is exceptionally ambitious. So, for example, the amount of health care spending that the Democrats were looking to get through their Build Back Better reconciliation bill is actually larger than what Barack Obama got in Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, even though Obama had 60 Democratic votes in the Senate and Joe Biden has 50, uh, 50 and a half, because if there's a tie, Vice President Harris um, casts the vote. Uh, and so none of this was or should have been difficult to predict. I can understand how the administration might have decided it needed to go for broke anyway, because it wouldn't be able to explain to its supporters that it hadn't. And, you know, maybe things would just line up in their favor and uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema would go along with everything that they wanted. Um, but uh, but if they actually thought there was a good chance of success um, for this agenda, you got to wonder whether they just um, misunderstood American politics and thought we had a parliamentary system um, where this kind of thing really could work. But, you know, that's not our constitution. That's not our system. A lot has been made of a political realignment that has occurred uh, in recent years or is occurring uh, as we speak. And political parties, of course, are are often seemingly random assortments of policy preferences driven by interest groups. How do you evaluate the realignment to the extent that it's happening? And, and do you have any predictions about what it will look like uh, in the coming years? Well, I think there has been a realignment, uh, and not just in the United States, but throughout the developed world, in which um, people with... Um, Educational credentials, people who have college degrees, postgraduate degrees, have moved to the parties of the left. And um, people who don't have that are moving to parties of the right. Now, I would say that in the U.S., the complicating factor to that realignment and the reason it has been a partial realignment, really, 
is um, the politics of race that um, African Americans and Asian Americans and Hispanics have uh, not fully realigned in that way. Um, it's been a realignment among white voters, but we are now beginning to see that happen a little bit uh, among Hispanic voters in particular. Um, and so th the realignment seems to be accelerating. And it's something that is, I think, likely to um, work to the disadvantage of the Democratic Party. Why, why do you say that? Because it, it seems to me that uh, Donald Trump, in some ways, uh, at least from the 2016 election, the Republican Party appeared to have gotten smaller and a little less educated. Uh, Trump accelerated the Republican Party's ongoing demographic shift um, away from um, voters with college degrees toward voters without college degrees. Um, but I don't think that he ended up shrinking the party. He personally repelled a lot of voters. Um, I think you can you can see in the results of particularly the 2020 um, vote some some signs that there were a number of voters, especially the college degreed voters, but not just them, who personally couldn't stomach him. But um, you know, again, look at look at things like the Glenn Youngkin election in Virginia. It appears that Republicans have held on to some of the new working class voters that Trump attracted, and so Youngkin racked up even larger margins in rural counties of Virginia than Trump had. But the voters that Trump repelled um, turn out to have been personally repelled and willing to, in a lot of cases, come back to the Republican Party as long as Trump's not at the top of the ticket. This strikes me as at least a little bit similar to what happened with Barack Obama, you know, racking up huge vote totals in uh, 2008 and then uh, sort of a steady decline in Democratic turnout through 2016. 2008 was just about the most favorable set of circumstances the party out of power in the White House could have had for an election. You had an economic meltdown that became undeniable just a few weeks before the election. You had war in Iraq that wasn't going well. You had an outgoing two-term president, um, by which time there's all, even under good circumstances, there's a healthy time for a change sentiment. And Democrats mistook that, again, for a sweeping mandate. Uh, and, and by 2010, in addition to the fact that the economy's recovery was weak, um, people had decided they didn't like uh, a kind of um, liberalism on the march uh, and voted out the Democrats. Um, I think it was something like a 65-seat swing in the House, which is, which is pretty large. Um, and, uh, you know, we may see that that's happening again. Look, the, the, the core, the base of both parties is pretty far from where your middle-of-the-road voter is. Uh, and to the extent that that both parties are day to day governed by what their true believers want, um, you're going to see them continue to alienate the middle. That doesn't seem particularly uh, encouraging to me. You seem to think it's more encouraging that uh, the day to day party is day to day parties. Both of them are out of touch largely with the median voter. So I think that um, each 
party has gotten convinced that it represents a majority of the country, that the people are really on their side, and that if they don't get their way, it's for some nefarious reason. So on the Republican side, if they don't prevail over all of their enemies, it's because of the deep state or the media uh, or the elections were rigged. Um, And if you're a Democrat, um, it's because the campaign finance system is broken and it's because of dark money and it's because of disinformation. And it seems to me that, um, uh, in fact, neither side has majority support. Both sides has majority suspicion. Um, and I think that that suspicion is entirely justified. I don't think that either party really deserves uh, a kind of broad uh, mandate right now. And that's why the public's withholding it. Ramesh Panuru is the new editor of National Review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>